As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and McLaren has sprung a surprise and kicked off F1 2024's launch season early by revealing its not-so-new look, although we'll have to wait a bit longer for its new car. But Andreas Stella has outlined some big ambitions for the team, so after that outstanding turnaround last season, can it kick on, and how potent a force might it be? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us with all the answers are Ben Anderson and Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Ben, welcome, we'll come to you first. Are you been dazzled by the, the McLaren visuals, a very different look? Well, I was more surprised by the fact of it being a season launch. I headed to MTC in Scott's place because Scott was unwell, unfortunately, over the weekend. Get well soon, Scott. Um, And was expecting just to have a kind of media brunch was how it was billed, a bit of a chat with Andrea Stella and Zach Brown. Teams do this from time to time. I remember going to one at McLaren a few years ago where... I think Andres Seidel was there and they paraded James Key and maybe Peter Padromi was brought in for breakfast as well. And not uncommon for teams to do this thing well ahead of launch season because everyone's bored and they want to hear from from people again. And then suddenly we get told, oh no, we're going downstairs from the, the Thought Leadership Centre, as it's called, one of, I think, Ron Dennis's uh, doings, that name, into the auditorium. And actually we're launching our season and revealing the livery and you're going to hear from the managers and that's going to be it until we go testing so suddenly everyone was ears pricked and having to get their game faces on to uh to do full mclaren chat because this is all there's going to be until we get going and you got to be shocked by the orange and black mclaren that looks basically the same <laughs> as it did at the end of last it's very nice well, but it's not well, new well it was it was quite funny because they got uh zach and uh and stella to uh, uh unveil the show car that was there on the stage and they they peeled back the covers and to complete silence and Zach even said hold your applause <laughs> and I was tempted to say well we're all just stunned into silence <laughs> but you're you're right I mean it looks you know let's call it iterative in terms of the uh the livery progression from last year to this year it certainly isn't a root and branch reform and to be fair, we weren't expecting anything different visually. And obviously, the papaya is very much the McLaren look. So that's fine. It's just that's that's all teams tend to have to show at this time of year. And liveries don't uh, don't change a great deal. I have to say, it, uh, Scott, as you said, you weren't able to go. You did do some uh, stuff remote as well. So you spoke to uh, Stella and, and Zach Brown. But I have to say, it's probably worth giving people a bit of an insight into what it's like attending a, a launch at McLaren, which you've done many times. We all have. That... that th- uh, auditorium they use for it. It's really good, isn't it? They've got a great facility there. Yeah, they they do. Um the uh it was it was a shame it was a shame not to go. Um and obviously when we found out it was a bit more serious than just a friendly catch up in early January, I had a um I had a small degree of uh FOMO, but I was happy <laughs> to have taken it seriously and um decide and, and arranged for a substitute uh, appearance. I would have been um I think I would have been reeling if I'd um, discovered afterwards what what it was, and I hadn't taken it um, quite so seriously, I did get to speak to to Stella and Brown as, as you you said, Ed. But no, the the, the facilities um, great. I think there's um, there are little there are still those the 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 remnants of the Ron Dennis era um, when you especially when you uh, 
when you go you enter the the facility and you walk along the the super long corridor that feels like it kind of feels like it was it kind of I'm trying to describe it, it feels like what it's Bond villain layer, isn't it? Yeah, Bond villain, but also there's like a there's a dash of there's a dash of 1990s era sci-fi. This is what a spaceship might look like in 20 years time. Like as you walk down one of the corridors, that that it's got that kind of vibe to it as well. But then obviously you. Get I didn't to those... see Darth Vader when I was walking the corridors. <laughs> I heard some hissing. Maybe it's funny you say that, but MTC has been used as a filming location for. Uh, one of the Star Wars series, I think it was Andor. It was it was used in. So so there you go. There is a connection. Yeah, exactly. you might you might see a Star Wars character at MTC. <laughs> uh, but it is a, it's a great facility. They um they they, they do make a, a big effort with, with with stuff like this. And and I while I was a, and am a, a little bit underwhelmed by delivery. The thing I don't like about it is less the fact that it's iterative, as, as Ben called it. But I, I think the addition of Chrome on the numbers makes the numbers harder to, 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 to see. It might be different in in reality, but certainly on the images I've seen, it's um, it's tricky. And obviously, the identity is 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 everything with those numbers. It's why they've been added to the car in in that sort of bigger form since what for for the better part of a decade now. Um, so it's a shame that they're a bit um, that that's a bit uh, dis- disguised. I I think the, um, the they've got all those sponsors to fit in, Scott. You know all those yeah, extra yeah, yeah. partners no, that's McLaren true. have been signing, so they can't afford to have big numbers because that's that's, that's that space is retail space. <laughs> no, but it's not the but the number size isn't the problem. It's specifically the color. Like I think that that right. chrome finish, I think that doesn't help. But that that aside, underwhelming livery aside, or underwhelming lack of change of a livery of a side uh, aside. Um, I admire what they've done by putting something like this on in mid-January. I love the idea of a, a surprise drop, and if I was just uh, if I if I wasn't a journalist, if I was just a, a motorsport fan, or specifically a McLaren fan, I'd be I'd be absolutely thrilled with a surprise livery drop because as much as I think we've talked about in previous podcasts and we did a year ago, you know, delivery is for us is is far from the be all and end all it is something that fans really care about and it's a little bit like i think i might have said this on the last podcast i was on um when we were on here with mark hughes you know it's the same for me like when my when my football club drops the new home kit it looks basically identical to last year's home kit and i still really like it now and i'm in my 30s so um i i quite li- I, I do like the fact that they've just gone well why not do it now why why not just why not just throw this out there in terms of the actual car, when is that going to be appearing in some way, shape or form? Is it not until testing, Ben, or will we see it before that? I understand there'll be some kind of shakedown filming day run. I think there's a plan. February the 14th. There we go. Thank you, Scott. So they're going to do some running and then we should hear from the drivers once they've actually got something to say about the the slow laps they've done in the new car. Obviously, they'll do the classic thing of... of uh, playing down expectations when, of course, they know exactly how it feels from almost lap one, whether it's going to be good or not. Um, but the whole plan here was for McLaren to basically split their launch out because if they put the drivers up uh, with the management, you know, a month or near enough before they'd even sat in the car, they've got nothing to say really that's any different from the end of last year. So um, hopefully they'll have something more meaningful to share with us once they've actually driven the new car. I should add that the February 14th date is for when they say that the MCL 38 will be revealed. So I assume that will coincide with if it is going to run on track. Um, I think we know that that's the same day as Mercedes now, don't we? And Mercedes always kicks off with it with a shakedown. It wouldn't surprise me if they've booked half a day at Silverstone each. Um, you know, split. They, the, they could be split. on track together. <laughs> <laughs> the first I, well, I, race I, of 2024. <laughs> I think I can speak for um, our editor in chief, Glenn Freeman, and our um, head of uh, head of video, Luke, um, when I say that if this means a drizzly shakedown day at Silverstone for two teams and a bunch of media uh, filming day assets of a car being shaken down on one of the sil- small Silverstone circuits on intermediate tyres on a gloomy um, British morning or afternoon, then I think that we're going to be in for another long season of creative video edits on our YouTube channel. <laughs> the thing that's always great about when drivers first jump in the car and they do the early running and they'll say phrases, oh, we don't really know yet, we don't really know yet. Then when you get to the end of the season, you talk about it, they'll say, oh yeah, I knew the first time I drove this car it was going to be a problem for this. Or I knew it was going <laughs> Great, so it's one of those things in that it's a great thing at this time of year because while 
everyone will say, oh, you don't really know until the first race or through the season. But this is the start of just piecing together little bits of information and storyline and understanding, etc. Like, it doesn't reveal a huge amount. But remember last year, people say launch users, but McLaren playing down its expectations for the start of the year and saying, oh, we'll have this Azerbaijan upgrade. That was the start of the McLaren story. It, it gave a context for what we were seeing. So th- this idea that you don't learn anything, you do see varying amounts from the cars but some teams do show actual cars when you get to the launches so you start to learn things of course you don't learn everything not by a long shot but you're piecing together these little bits of information over the next month or so five weeks during which we'll have the launches and testing well to your point ed um about not being able to read too much into it i mean that's exactly what I've meant second time I mentioned him in quick succession, but that's what was so amusing. I think it was in December, but um, or it might have been after Abu Dhabi in November. But um, when when Glenn tweeted something along those lines about drivers tell us at testing it's too soon to 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 know anything and then at the end of the year they're saying oh well i knew the first time i drove this car charles leclerc liked that tweet (laughs) Um, and obviously there were loads of rumors in bahrain testing last year that they'd already discovered at ferrari that the car wasn't handling the way they expected it to and that got massively played down at the time and but obviously i think uh I, d- I think in this case, it's a, a like doesn't necessarily mean an endorsement of the view, but I reckon we could definitely take Le- Leclerc's position there to be that's exactly um, what he was uh, he was getting at. The, the, bro- the, bro- the broader point about this being a useful time is it, true. One, I saw some, I saw a couple of tweets about this uh, or on the weekend or on Monday, maybe it was. Um, I'm not going to name who who they were, but th- th- there was just a little bit. From people who aren't really, really involved in, in Formula One, but basically comment on the side. So they're not actually in the paddock. Uh, they don't. I don't think they have particularly good F1 contacts. And they're saying things like, um, team, teams never talk about where they're at and um, there's no information being shared from inside of teams to the outside or to other teams about where, what position they're in or what progress has or hasn't been made. That's absolute nonsense. It, it a- Absolute nonsense that there are people in every single organisation that can't help themselves, whether that is talking across one another, so team to team, or to people outside of teams. And that includes us, the media, because there are, there are all sorts of people we know who we've got uh, better relationships with with than others and st- you just end up chatting it doesn't mean that you're necessarily writing about it and it doesn't mean that you're taking it as absolute gospel but a, a case in point will be last year there were rumors uh, like ferrari were aware of aston martin rumors by december january last year they they were convinced that aston martin were doing something good so if my my point would be that yes we don't read too much into what we hear or see in the launches and even in testing, but we do get a good idea. And anyone who tells you that you can't learn anything over the off season and through testing, they they don't know what they're talking about. That's just testing, Scott. It's just testing. <laughs> well, the thing is, it, and it's all it's all provision. It's like when we analyse the the testing data, the times you can only go with what's there. And nobody's saying that's 100% everything, particularly when it's Bahrain, which is a tricky trap because of the track temperature, how, how much the... the pace varies and the tyres etc but it's all just little bits of information that you can string together and yeah no no team really knows where they're going to be but they know where they are against their expectations and coming back to that point about when they drive the car you have to remember this isn't just drivers jumping into a car they have no idea about they'll have driven it extensively in the simulator so your first thing is do you jump in the car does it broadly correlate and you'll get a, a basic feel for that very, very quickly. These are very, very sensitive sensors, the drivers. They feel a lot. They know a lot. So while they won't be 100% on their first lap out of the pits, I think that they'll start to get a feel. So it's just about being realistic about what you're going to learn and how much predictive power there is at this time. And yeah, it's just about picking up the storylines for teams, starting, of course, with McLaren. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Right, Ben, this time last year, McLaren was strikingly downbeat pre-season. I can remember talking about it on the podcast, but things are very different this year. So how excited should McLaren fans and fans of there being as many competitive cars as possible in F1, for that matter, be based on what team principal Andreas Stellas said? Well, I think they can definitely be a lot more excited than this time 12 months ago. And it was a clever surprising but clever strategy of McLaren to play everything down. You know, they knew they were in trouble they knew they had to change direction, enact a technical restructure, etc. And then obviously the mid-season development in 23 su- surprised some people, even with, within McLaren, about how potent it was. But that's given them, that's set the trajectory that they're on now. And they're confident in that trajectory. And everything Stella was saying during the press conference at the season launch was about how they still don't see any diminishing returns in that gradient you know they've done two major steps obviously the phased upgrade from Austria through Silverstone etc in the middle of last season then another one in Singapore they're still on that trajectory they still see what he described as linear uh, increases in terms of numbers from their new simulation tools new wind tunnel they're using they have the the new car in the in the tunnel from September these are kind of tools that we were expecting not to really play into McLaren's progress until maybe 2025 but they're on stream now they're being utilized so i described the atmosphere as one of quiet confidence zach brown said that the target is to close the gap to red bull i don't think mclaren believes and certainly would they wouldn't say publicly now that they they're going to come out the blocks and and beat red bull mainly because of this fear and i think it's a realistic one too that red bull has a a load of basically latent potential in RB20 from the lack of development they did in 2023. So that's the big unknown. But I think in terms of focusing on themselves, McLaren are in a good place. They feel like they're in a good place. They're not seeing the plateau. That's the word that Stella used this time last year when they were looking at the development slope and thinking, oh no, we're we're not going to get anywhere with this concept. They've changed direction and they still see um, massive room for improvement. The only thing is the peakiness of last year's car. They they now admit, having done their post-season analysis, that as they they bought that second update in Singapore, it did make the car harder to drive on the limit. And that's something they're looking to address. But from what he was saying, it's not something they're going to immediately, immediately be able to fix. It, it sounds like there'll be some improvements in the launch spec car, but it's tied in with other aerodynamic and suspension improvements that will take some time to filter through the production process. It's impossible not to read into what was being said by Stella and, and Zach Brown and and not get a bit carried away with where McLaren's at at this point. And the, the reason for that is the contrast to 12 months ago when Stella, new in the role of team principal, actively took the view of, we need to, we need to come out, we need to, take on the chin that we're not in a good place we need to tell everybody that we're not in the place that we want to be and we need to play down expectations for the start of the year um he he and mclaren were very honest about the position that they were in because they realized that it was going to be exposed come testing and especially the first race anyway so what was the point in in hiding it you just set yourself up for failure what we did have at the time at the launch and then through the season, as new iterations of the car were being readied, Stella being quite punchy about what he thought they had in the pipeline. That started at the launch last last year when they said, OK, we'll be moving towards a new direction with the Baku upgrade. And then around Baku, it was, look, this isn't going to be stunningly different, but it sets us on a new new path. And it's the next upgrade is going to be almost a B-spec. We get to Austria, the car jumps forward in performance and they say, wait until you see what we got for Singapore. That's going to be mega as well. That upgrade comes and then Lando Norris is on this run of finishing second to to Max Verstappen. Every Every time, whether bad or good, 
the stellar era of McLaren has set out its development path or where it thinks it is and what it thinks it can achieve, it has it has hit it, negative and positive. He's earned the benefit of the doubt in this position. Now, what he admits is that whatever position they are in now matters not a jot if Red Bull unleashes, as Ben was um, describing, this pent-up development from 2023 if Mercedes and Ferrari get their acts together finally then McLaren will find it difficult to be second best to Red Bull this season but it's all about where McLaren's at and where McLaren was at this time 12 months ago was in trouble on the back foot having had to course correct quite late in the day and facing the prospect of a start of the season where it's not where it wanted to be now as Ben's saying the development gradient is still as it was when they introduced these Austrian Singapore packages. They they they're on a constant uh, they're on a constant con- upwards trajectory with their development. They know that they're still finding gains in every area, coming up with good ideas in every area. It is just a it's a night and day difference to where they were going into launch season twelve months ago. Yeah, it has the air of a team that's got a, a good handle on what it's doing and its approach. The interesting question for me is. You mentioned the peakiness of the car and that also that slow corner characteristic as well, that the struggles they had there with sort of long, slow corners, which has been there for a while. So really showing they've understood the root cause of these characteristics is a, is a big thing there. But it, it it's interesting, isn't it, Ben? Because you can make a case for McLaren being the most compelling potential challenger to Red Bull, given it's not having to make wholesale changes to its car concept and approach for this year which Mercedes and Ferrari are so they're in a really really interesting position aren't they yeah they've got a similar surprise positive surprise to Aston Martin in the sense that when they when they did their expectation management at the start of 2023 the aim by the end of the season was to be challenging to be fourth best but as Zach put it at the briefing actually they finished the season as the second quickest team second or third depending on the on the track so they've overachieved according to their own expectations which is what Aston Martin did at the start of last season but they haven't had the backward step of development going wrong in season and getting a bit lost like Aston Martin did actually everything McLaren's been doing as Scott outlined is working and that there's nothing that gives an F1 team more confidence than knowing the path you're on is right and that when you bring iterative developments to your car, that they work every time. Now they've got better, newer tools. They should be able to refine that development even more. They've also bolstered their technical team, so that restructure that Stella enacted, they've now filled the remaining positions. They've hired Rob Marshall from Red Bull and David Sanchez from Ferrari, and they started work at the beginning of January. Obviously, they won't have won't have had huge input into the genesis of the 2024 car, but Stella was saying they've already contributed ideas and had creative discussions with existing McLaren personnel, and he described those conversations as fascinating. But also, he described them as reassuring for McLaren because the things that these guys have been saying coming from two of the most competitive teams, certainly the most competitive team under the new Grand Effect era, there weren't any surprises. They they didn't come in and say, oh, you're doing this all wrong. You need to do it this way. Actually, what they were saying was supportive of the path McLaren is already on. So that strengthens, strengthens the, the feeling of self-confidence that McLaren is on the right path. And how they'll, how they'll dovetail with what's going on now, Stella described it as having basically a three-pronged attack. You've got this year, you've got to very quickly think about what you're doing for 25, the last year of the rules as they stand. And then you've got on the the near horizon, the major rules reset for 2026. So he wanted to have what he called high calibers, major leaders in aerodynamics, engineering and concept so that they can attack all three of these projects at full power without one compromising the other as you get into the next one. So there's this feeling that McLaren's quite sensibly approaching things and has built the foundations to actually become what it's been trying to become really since it it gave up Mercedes work status for the promise of Honda work status in the hybrid era. It's been such a mess for so long. But the path they've been on really since 2018 feels more tangible, I would say, than it's ever felt. Well, the irony is, is that they're in the it's by going back to Mercedes 
uh, which the decision and the decision to split from them was born from believing Ron Dennis's era believing that you couldn't win the the world championship or fight for the world championship in the hybrid era as a customer. It's going back to customer status at Mercedes that has helped them at the, or facilitated and played a part in this becoming the most convincing version of McLaren in that sort of 10-year wilderness in between, basically. And it's not And they're just- better than the works team now, aren't they? You know, Ron was petrified that Mercedes works team just wouldn't, even if it promised it would, give his team equal equipment. But now you've got a situation where the McLaren is definitely stronger than the works Mercedes team. Yeah, and it's not that having the Mercedes engine is the difference that no. you know versus McLaren in 2018 that's why this version of McLaren can finally win again because McLaren has had to go through all manner of changes two or three times over since getting back together or since getting out of the Honda deal certainly um, yeah. and becoming a customer again so it's it's not just that but but it's just the it's that it's that broader kind of outlook on things and that strategy the the foundations that Ben was talking about there because you 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 can't win or fight for a Formula 1 world championship as a customer team in disarray but McLaren is starting to piece together a fairly convincing argument that you might be able to if you have absolutely everything lined up and the engine is the, the works engine basically becomes a nice luxury rather than a, a key ingredient in that. And this year will be quite a well, big Well, the rules test. have changed too, haven't they? They've made it so that the the equality of supply is enshrined in the regulations, which in fairness to Ron, it wasn't at the time. It was a bit vaguer. And so the advantage of being a works team now is more about the integration of power unit with chassis and, and being able to do, design things as one rather than having to take things as as given to you out of a box. But it seems like the gap between that and the work status is much diminished compared to how people maybe thought about it in the early part of the hybrid era. And I'm sure that that is also deal dependent because one of the things that McLaren talked about towards the end of last year when the Mercedes renewal was announced for the next phase of the the, the F1 power unit rules from 26 onwards, the indication is that they've got more of a seat at the table than they had before. So they won't be getting stuff... Um, they won't be getting stuff, key design information at short notice. They'll be clued into the process much earlier, which will aid that integration. It still won't be works team level, but it sounds like the kind of thing that mitigates that key disadvantage versus a works works team enough for McLaren to think, okay, well, if if this is where we're at on the engine side and we know what we're doing with everything else that goes into creating a competitive F1 car, we're going to have everything else so well lined up that we can afford to have this small disadvantage in this area. That's the thing. There is inevitably a small disadvantage there. The performance potential of a team that has worked control over its engine will be very slightly greater than one that's using a customer one. That That's just unavoidable. But as you say, the, the gap has narrowed significantly. You can't really tally it all up and put a number on it. But you're, you're talking a few tenths, probably. So right. it's not difficult for one team to produce a... Well, it's not... It's not, not difficult, but it, it, plenty of teams produce cars that are a couple of tenths or three tenths quicker than the opposition. So you're dealing in, in that in that sort of area. Well, McLaren has a history of overcoming that too, don't they? You know, they had the Renault engine at the start of this post-Honda revival and did such a good job in the second year that they were better than the works team. I know that is maybe a low bar in terms of works teams in F1, but... Nevertheless, they were able to integrate that engine well enough to overcome any disadvantage from not being the works the works team. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't agree they're overcoming a disadvantage. I'm saying what I would characterise it as you need Alpine to underachieve. Because if Alpine gets... I see. Uh, let's say if you have two teams that have the same, notionally the same performance potential car-wise, there is a little bit more to access in the works team. I'm not saying it's huge, but w- what I am saying is if you got into a scenario where a Mercedes team versus a McLaren team. And let's say they're both notionally doing a brilliant job on the chassis and the aero and everything, and everything's great. Then the engine ca- the engine packaging advantage can be enough to swing it in your favour. But the advantage is small enough for it not to blow you out of the water, which is the point you made when Ron Dennis was talking about it back in the past. Yeah. You could, you would be blown out of the water by it. So uh, we're getting into the sort of the the, the fine detail of that. But uh, yeah, I, I don't look at McLaren and think, oh, they're, they're 
hold below the waterline by not having a works engine deal. However, there is no doubt that if they felt they could align themselves with a good manufacturer that could produce a competitive, strong engine, and it all lined up, they they would love to do that. But what they're not going to do is do it for anyone. So uh, that's perhaps the lesson of the uh, the Honda era. But that that's about the only little asterisks, and it's a small one you can put against McLaren, isn't it? They've got so much going on there: the infrastructure investments, the 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 confirmation that they're in a good direction technically and the fact that two-thirds of their three-pronged technical leadership only joined this year so they had no influence on that great turnaround last year so yeah very very interesting going into the season for mclaren we'll get back to the pod in a moment but first a word about our partner grammarly no matter what kind of work you do how you communicate is key All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Scott, let's get on to the drivers now because that Lando Norris Oscar Piastri combination is one of the most exciting lineups in F1. Unsurprisingly, there are plenty of questions about that. Where do you feel McLaren is with those two? And people talk about the potential for there being some real rivalry there as Piastri's experience builds, the question about Norris and getting the most out of himself and avoiding the mistakes. A couple of interesting little driver storylines there. Yeah, there are interesting st- storylines to be had within McLaren this season. I think they're in a very strong position. I, I think I think the two are slightly less evenly matched than maybe assumed in the sort of laziest comparisons between the two because Norris did have a, a defin Norris did have a definitive edge in the in the races, even when Piastri was looking so strong in qualifying towards the end of last year in particular. We would naturally expect Piastri to make a step in that era in that area in his second season with with a bit more experience so theoretically the room that Piastri has to improve is greater than Norris because Norris is performing at an extremely high level most of the time and is more experienced um there's a little less low-hanging fruit as a driver for him to to grab at so that's where those um trajectories could uh could meet and it's in that condition or environment where the two drivers could come to blows and or there could be headaches within the team in terms of whether you need to prioritize one or the other and I think Stella was even asked you know what happens if uh, god forbid Piastri wins a race before Norris because there's this overblown narrative around the fact that Norris hasn't won a race yet in Formula One and, and Stella responded in kind of the manner you'd expect but I also think completely sincerely when he just said well one I'd just be really happy for Piastri <laughs> because we've he's won a race. And I think Lando would be very happy as well because it means that the car's good enough to win. Which, yeah, that that would basically be the scenario. The only the only scenario in which that, that's a massive problem for McLaren is if Norris misses some genuine guilt-edged opportunities to win in twenty twenty four and Piastri wins at the first chance he gets. That that's the and, and I can't see that happening because and we can get into this in a little bit more detail, but I think Norris will improve and and should cut down the mistakes he made in qualifying towards the end of last season, which were partly peaky car characteristic in, induced as well as maybe his own tendency to slightly overdo it when he doesn't need to in qualifying, but also because the races were where Norris absolutely excelled. So I, I, genu- I, th- I, I sincerely believe that if the McLaren is good enough to fight the Red Bull on a race day, then Norris can win a Grand Prix this season. That, and that is not a spectacularly hot take by any means. I do think if if he's not already, if I was Norris, I'd be a little bit preoccupied or concerned with how good Piastri could become. Yes, it's true. There's a 
there's a deficit there, a clear one at the moment. And that's kind of, in my mind, what's keeping a lid on things. But Piastri is already doing well enough to make Norris uncomfortable. And you would expect, given he's only had one season, that he should be making Norris's life more uncomfortable the more experience he gains. And that's where Stella's going to earn his corn in terms of trying to manage that pairing. And there was an interesting difference in how Zach and Stella talked about Norris. I asked Zach about Norris's contract situation. Obviously, they moved very quickly to tie Oscar down to a longer-term deal because they could see he was the real deal. And quite rightly, they wanted to prevent other teams from sniffing around him. So he now has a contract that lasts longer than Norris's does. So inevitably, especially when there's always this speculation around Norris and Red Bull and him becoming Max's teammate, maybe, or successor or whatever, what's McLaren going to do about Norris's contract? Are they already talking to him about extending that? And Zach was very clear about, you know, he sees that driver lineup as the, a key part of this structure and personnel and path that McLaren's on longer term. They, it's a high priority is the phrase he used to keep that in place. But it'll be more difficult to do if the drivers are crashing into each other or making each other uncomfortable. But at the same time, Stella has kind of issued almost a challenge to Norris, I think. He was talking about the level that Max Verstappen has reached in terms of consistency of performance and how he's evolved into a better driver than he was even in 2021 when he won his first title. And clearly... The inference there is Norris isn't at that level of consistency. They can see the peak of performances there, but there are too many mistakes still. He hasn't quite evened out in a way that well, nobody has maybe, that Max has. And so there's almost a challenge to Norris to say, well, if you, we obviously want you to be the, the fulcrum of our push to become a championship winning team again, but also you need to step up and, and drive a bit more like this guy does if you want to really earn that status. But that's why I think it's. I think that comes down to the difference in their respective remits between Zach and Andrea, because Zach is bigger picture. It, Zach is much more kind of right. What do I need? I need two mega drivers. I've got two mega drivers at the moment. One of them is under contract for 2026. Don't have to worry about him. The other one has some suitors. I probably need to prioritize that. Yes, he's a high priority. This team is built around him. The, the, the plan is built around him. That that's as far as Zach's priority goes with 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 Lando with Andrea. It's it's the granular stuff. It's the right. You are great, but how can I get you to be great more often than you are at the moment? And there, the 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 glaring bit that's missing there is that consistency in qualifying performance. Now, the 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 beauty of the way that Stella has approached that is that at no point has he ruled out basically any factor and that includes whether or not Piastri got in Norris's head a little bit towards the end of last season because Stella said that the human element is is a key thing here and if you if you can see that the other driver in the same car is doing something that that can maybe um, put pressure on you or, or push you in in a slightly different way what what I think Lando needs to do more than anything this year is just just convert those moments where you only need to be at 99%. You don't need to, because if you if you try and be at 100%, and it, it will get easier if the car's better. If you're in a car that, that Verstappen looks like he had sometimes in the same way in the past, the way that the Mercedes um, could look, um, that becomes easier because you don't need to get 100 or more, or, and you don't get tricked into thinking you need to get more than 100% out of what the car's capable of, because that's not possible, and that's where that's where you trip up because I think the the key thing that Norris should remember is that he does have that edge on Piastri in the races and while that will be chipped away at it it that's the hard bit is is doing is being at that level being at that Verstappen level over a race distance because as Max himself put it when I spoke to him at the end of last year he prefers races to qualifying because in Formula One pretty much everybody can pull out a really good qualifying lap but doing that over a race distance and doing that 24 times a year, that's where the difference really shines between drivers over a full season. You will also get the qualifying de deficit over the full season between a, a better driver than a worse driver. But the the real manifestation will, will, will be on Sundays and in your accumulation of points and results over the course of a season. And that that's just where... Norris shone last year so if he can just get that qualifying stuff under control and do what Stella's asking of him there 
then he will take a step naturally towards that level, that reference that you talk about that Verstappen has set and Stella cited. We had a little preview of how Stella might try and manage this situation last year because it's probably forgotten by many, but they had that little moment at Monza um, after the pit stops where they made very light contact, Piastri and Norris. And I think a lot of team principals would have kind of gone, oh, no harm, no foul, played it down, shrugged it off. But Stella publicly said, right, I'm going to be very clear on this. McLaren cars don't make contact. That's not acceptable. This is not how we do things here. And he was very clear in public, and I'm sure probably even more forthright behind the scenes in just saying, laying down the law, saying, no, this is not acceptable. And I I was very positive, and I know we're at danger of finding sounding like the Andrea Stella fan club here, but he does do things <laughs> in a very good way, I think. But he took that opportunity of a of an incident that hadn't really made any difference in the grand scheme of things to really lay down a marker. And I think that was very, very positive. Now, there's only so much any team boss can do in terms of managing drivers and the chance of there being a rivalry that overflows, that causes problems, rises the more competitive a car is. If you're fighting for a championship, that's your prime position for it to happen. But I think it's encouraging that Stella is willing to take that head on rather than just sort of getting away with it a few times and then it all comes to a head and then they all kick off. So I think that's pretty uh, pretty positive. But yeah, it's an interesting little thing. But it's an interesting storyline to follow because Norris is a driver with huge ability and Piastri is as well. And Piastri is only going to get better. And I'm sure his race performances will improve as he gets his head around the the tyres, which are a, a tricky thing to to master. Let's move on now, finally, Ben, to the political landscape. It's going to be a pretty frenetic year, I think, in terms of the off-track stuff. Zach Brown returned to a topic he was pushing last year by criticising the ownership of second teams. So what did he have to say about Red Bull's situation in particular? Yeah, he's definitely got to be in his bonnet about this. He, he wrote that letter to McLaren fans, didn't he? Admonishing... The fact that Red Bull has this unique relationship and a unique ownership structure of two teams under one umbrella. And of course, now that Red Bull 2, whatever it's going to be called, team formerly known as Alpha Tauri or Alpha Tori, as Christian Horner likes to call it, is going to come into the Milton Keynes complex. I think that's that's activated Zach's spidey sense. And he, he feels like the fact they're going to be under one roof makes it much harder to distinguish between one entity and the other and he raised this topic almost unilaterally twice during the the launch press conference answering different questions about Red Bull's performance more generally and then a later question about FAA governance and the the weird investigation into the integrity of Toto Wolff and Susie Wolff at the end of end of last season and he, he he used words like concerned repeatedly um questioned the fairness to the sport of formula one of having you know this ownership structure unfair advantage is another phrase he used serious issue and he's his principal concern seems to be that uh they would somehow glean extra hidden benefits from working so close together and you start to struggle to distinguish under a budget cap where everyone's resources are limited, where one team begins and the other ends. And he, his principal concern seems to be, well, obviously his principal concern is that Red Bull will just gain somehow competitively from that and that will be to McLaren's detriment. But the argument he's putting forward is that, you know, under pre-budget cap era of Formula One, teams got out of balance. You had massive spenders and teams that were almost going to the wall. And this dynamic is born out of that era and doesn't fit with a Formula One that is closing up and becoming you know 10 franchises and in his mind they should be 10 distinct franchises because in US sports it's forbidden to have these kind of teams in one one sport under the same ownership and he thinks that that should apply to Formula One. I actually think Zach's main point is correct I do think F1 needs to move to outlaw that certainly happening again i think you can grandfather existing setups if you want that's fine because red bull did what it was allowed to do i think he's slightly overstating the extent of the collaboration obviously it was always going to happen that with 
the second team, as we kind of have to call what was AlphaTauri, given it's it's not quite set uh, on exactly what its uh, its name will be this year. But moving on to the same site was always going to heighten this. So there's, there's kind of two points. So I, I don't think it's it's being used quite as much as perhaps is being suggested. And certainly some people are concluding there's massive collusion on that. But there is the risk of it in the future. And I think he's right that this, this is something, Scott, that surely has to be sorted in the next Concord, doesn't it? The first thing you do is stop it happening in the future, give some semblance of control over preventing it. And then you can sort out the details of what you do. Normally, you would kind of quietly encourage Red Bull to sell off its second team, but not make it publicly in a position where it's forced to because that would devalue the team. That that seems like a sensible course of action. So I think in any sport, avoiding having that kind of dual ownership is a wise thing to do. And F1 doesn't need to do that now. Yeah, I was annoyed when I saw the open letter from from Zach at the end of last year to fans included the reference to um, the multi-team ownership from the same entity and maybe move it move into to a, a structure where that's not possible in the future because I was planning a I was I was planning on a column along those lines and then at the time I just thought ah oh, it's now going to just look like I've nicked Zach's idea or I'm just parroting Zach's idea so I want to. Uh, maybe hold off on that for for a little bit. I think the I think whenever this conversation takes place it's important not to devalue what Red Bull and Dietrich Mateschitz did for Formula 1 because that that ownership of two teams got, runs runs through a period whereby multiple periods in fact in which F1 struggled beyond a core group of committed Formula One teams or owners or or entries, and Red Bull underpinned that in a big way by basically guaranteeing four cars every season for a very long time. They invested in um, bringing back a, a Grand Prix with a fantastic facility. Um, a big chunk of the current grid have come through the Red Bull program, and that the Red Bull contribution to motorsport as a whole, but specifically F One, is is massive. And what what you definitely couldn't do now in the in, in the interest of fairness and you know financial fairness as you you said Ed, you, if you tried to force them to sell one of the teams now you're basically driving down the the, the sale price but also just from a out, just out of respect I, I don't think it would be right uh, for F1 to turn around and say oh this is really good while we were struggling thanks for that but we're in a good place now so can you want can you just get rid of one of those teams so that we can cash in and bring another franchise in that's going to be going to be great i i completely agree with the idea in principle going forward that you should want to avoid this situation being able to happen again because we should now be in a place for f1 where we don't need to rely on a benefactor like Mateschitz. not i think it would be very difficult to find one like him for starters but when it comes to uh, I don't think it's about outright ownership in the Mateschitz style. It's about the fact that F1's attracting so many investment companies and different people that that want a piece of the pie. You do. I, I can definitely see a world in which one entity, maybe even one individual, ends up with interests in multiple teams. That 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 is something that is without the right regulatory framework to stop it from happening is something that would definitely appeal to the, the most wealthy people who like to invest in sports franchises. There's definitely some legacy awkwardness, let's say, for Formula One to deal with here because you've got, really, you've got two teams that don't fit with the the model they have now. Haas is one, this kind of pure customer team that does the absolute minimum itself and the Alpha Tauri model where it's under one ownership. I think there's also, I mean, the FIA will say, you know, and have said, oh, we can manage this perfectly well. You know, there was the whole you know, pink Mercedes, Racing Point, copycat, Storm, and work was done to clamp down further on idea sharing and what have you. So the FAA will say, well, we've got robust procedures in place to make sure there isn't, you know, unfair sharing of resources or what have you. Whether Formula One teams trust the FAA to manage that process is another question. There's always going to be this degree of good old-fashioned paranoia at play as well. You know, remember when Haas were about to join the Formula One grid, there was a huge suspicion that they were basically using Ferrari's wind tunnel uh, out of hours and passing data on to Ferrari. And I think Paddy Lowe even wrote a massive letter to Charlie Whiting trying to get this 
clarified and clamped down on Haas were massively in the sights of Zach when they were more successful because of the how close they were to Ferrari now he doesn't really worry about Haas too much because he's got a new thing to focus on McLaren's sights are higher and he's not so competitively bothered with what Haas are up to he's more concerned with Red Bull again it shows how far McLaren has come in a short space of time that now their principal focus both on and off the track is Red Bull what Red Bull's up to and how they can not only close the gap themselves but deny Red Bull any actual or perceived advantage it might be getting from from having these two teams. Yeah, I think the whole competitive paranoia thing is a good way of looking at it as well. Because it's funny, even with AlphaTauri, there wasn't that much complaining about this when AlphaTauri were rubbish for the first 18 months of this race. No, exactly. And yeah. <laughs> I, I do think it's overstated, this idea of people saying, oh, AlphaTauri, we're trying out a floor that Red Bull want to do for next year. And so it doesn't really work like that. Also, the, the people overestimate how similar, say, the Haas is to the Ferrari or the AlphaTauri is to the Red Bull. There's a lot of things on the Haas that are similar to the Ferrari, but there's also a lot of the architectural underpinnings are set by Ferrari parts because Haas takes, in fact, Haas takes far more parts from Ferrari than AlphaTauri as well as does from Red Bull. AlphaTauri are upping that a little bit, but still they need to have some of their own flexibility and, and freedoms. But it's a grey area I think Formula One could do without, but the point you made, Scott, is Mataschitz was practically begged by Bernie Eccleston and Max Mosley to buy Minardi. He bought it to help out F1, and for a long time it was officially up for sale. And then there have been times when it's been kind of unofficially up for sale. So I think it's a bit it is a bit unfair to consider that second team as some kind of Machiavellian plot by Red Bull. It's just something that happened, and they thought, oh, we'll use it as a junior driver development thing. But yeah, it's certainly something that's going to come up in the Concord discussions, and you're going to hear more and more talk about Concord as that's hammered together for 2026. There's some uh, there's some big talking points there, and we're going to see lots of people laying out their particular agendas and hobby horses. But I think in any sport, having dual ownership is not a great thing, and F1 should certainly make sure it doesn't happen again. And should maybe look at... You could perhaps gently encourage Red Bull to, uh, to look at an alternative future for the team, but I don't think they should be forced by any stretch of the imagination. Here's Michael Andretti's number. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, th- as I've said before, this is the Bernie Eccleston way of doing things. He would encourage it. He'd sort of say, right, this is going to happen. Here's some incentives for why it should happen. Go and sort it out. And funnily enough, he was very good at doing that. So maybe that's something for Stefano Domenicali to think about having a bit of a go at. Well, thanks very much, Ben and Scott, for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there on McLaren and the rest of the goings-on in Formula One. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, the Race F1 Tech Show with the legendary Gary Anderson, also our MotoGP Formula E and IndyCar podcasts. And if video's your thing, head to YouTube, where the Races channel produces all sorts of long and short-form content. Well, launch season has now officially begun, sort of, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.